You are listening to the official podcast of First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau. We are a community of faith, hope, and love located in Southeast Missouri. For more information, visit our website at fbccape.com. Well, what joy it is for me to be among the beloved of First Cape. I'd like to thank Pastor Tyler uh, for affording me this opportunity to preach, and for Dr. Ron Robinson, who introduced me to the church four years ago uh, in the beginning of your search for a pastor. Today is deeply personal for me because, as Tyler said, First Baptist Church of Cape Girardeau was the first church that I helped through the search process in my role as reference and referral manager. This morning, I bring you greetings from our outgoing executive, Susie Painter, and from our incoming executive coordinator, Paul Baxley, along with our field personnel and staff spread around the country and around the world. There are only fond memories of this church in my heart and mind, and I'm filled today with gratitude for your hospitality, those delicious donuts, and that strong coffee. (laughs) You all certainly embody the core of Hebrews 13, 1 and 2. Let brotherly love continue. And do not forget to entertain strangers, for some have entertained the very messengers of God without knowing it. The Scripture passage today in Mark 9 has me wondering if you have ever had any doubts about healings in the Bible. I certainly have had my own doubts about healings in the Scriptures, and especially about healings in the present day. More specifically, about those healings that are accompanied by the green prosperity prayer cloth. Or that made-for-TV-too-much-makeup-wearing televangelist gimmick. You know what I'm talking about, right? My faith is more likely characterized by a healthy mixture of belief and unbelief. Perhaps not too unlike yours. And let me tell you what I mean, or or maybe let me tell you a story about what I mean. It was in the middle of June 2016. Cooperative Baptist Fellowship was holding its annual gathering General Assembly in Greensboro, North Carolina. And every gathering just prior to it, our governance bodies meet to discuss and carry out the work of the fellowship. This year was no different, and we had just started the ministries council meeting when I get a a buzz in my pocket. I look at it, and it appears to be my daughter calling me from vacation. While I'm working, ignore. Moments later, Another buzz, same number, 
I'm going to send that to voicemail. And then seconds later, I get a text, 911. Tinsley is alive. She's fallen into a fire pit. We're headed to the ER now. I sprang out of my seat, reached over to my supervisor, showed her the text, and left. I went to call immediately. I had to know what was going on. I had to know that she was going to be okay. Please let me talk to her. And as she was screaming tears and writhing in pain, in the background, I received the information. And between her cries, I managed to tell her, Little love, it's Daddy. (laughs) You're going to be all right. I promise. I love you so much. I'm coming right to you as fast as I can. The, dirt, the doctors and the nurses are going to take good care of you. And I'll be there as fast as I can. I love you so, so much. You hang in there for me, okay? Can you be strong? Yes, Daddy, I love you. And off I went running, sprinting down the corridors of the hotel. While I was on the phone, the fellowship sprang into action. Meetings were stopped of the highest governance of our fellowship. Just stopped. Text messages were sent. Facebook messages were uploaded. Prayers, fervent prayers of the people were offered on our behalf, on Tinsley's behalf. And before I get to the lobby, my best friend is running to meet me. Let's go, she said. And she left her family behind. (laughs) We jump in the car. We're headed north. We're going to Virginia. It was the fastest and longest trip I have ever taken. I called family while Deborah ran logistics. (laughs) Eventually, we received word that Tinsley was going to be transported to the Evans Hayes Burn Center in Richmond, Virginia. With the GPS headed to the Commonwealth's capital, we prayed and grieved and put the pedal to the metal, thankful for a morphine drip and for ministers spread across the country who would ensure that God would be in the details. (laughs) Y'all, Deborah and I beat the ambulance to the hospital. They were in Virginia. We were in North Carolina. We beat them to Richmond. (sighs) When the, the gurney hit the doors, the first person Tinsley saw was Daddy. Daddy, she screamed pitifully, pitifully. She looked okay, bandaged up, She reached her arms out, and if you've ever tried to hug someone on a gurney headed toward the hospital, it's not the easiest thing you'll do. Certainly wasn't for me, and it and as I learned wound care and bandaging scars and dressing the wounds wouldn't be that easy either. 
You know, that stuff's not for the faint of heart. It's certainly not for the faint of stomach. Tinsley suffered second and third degree burns on the back of her legs. She accidentally fell backward into the fire pit. And when she quickly pushed herself up, she also burnt her hand and part of her arms. The metal ring (laughs) of the pit was piping hot even though the fire wasn't smoldering. I don't remember how long she was in the hospital. A week or more, I guess. <laughs> I've tried to put that in, my, in a distant memory. But I'll never forget the outpouring of love that she and we received from Cooperative Baptists whose cards and care packages and calls and visits showcased the binding love of Christian family. It was a deacon of our church, Smoke Rise Baptist Church, who had taken the scenic route home to Georgia by way of Virginia after visiting her best friend, Dr. Molly Marshall, in North Carolina for General Assembly. I don't know a whole lot about geography, but the scenic route from North Carolina to Georgia is not through Virginia and down. But she came and visited us. And she walked in. And Daddy just lost it. My deacon came to Virginia to care for me? My gosh! It was the children's minister at Second Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia who opened her house to my parents so that they wouldn't incur exorbitant cost of hotels and food expenses. And they just did it. They jumped into action. It was the campus ministry of my undergraduate alma mater who sent us clean clothes. (laughs) Apparently they had no shortage for shirts at the college. (laughs) Boy, we wore them proudly. It was the librarian in our city, who knew how much we loved reading to Tinsley, and she boxed up a bunch of the favorites and sent them to us. I mean, seriously, what kind of librarian does that? You know, it's been three years. Tinsley's wounds have healed nicely. She has very minimal scarring. And still, I can't help but emphasize and, and empathize with the boy's father in Mark chapter 9, having done my very share of wound care. And like a doctor gathering information at a patient visit, Jesus leans in and learns that this boy has been suffering his whole young life with these violent seizures since he was a child, often casting him into the fire and into the water. I imagine the boy's body, it's just riddled with burn scars. And I imagine the father's heart that is peppered with the pain that caregivers often internalize. He probably looks older than he really is. The weathered wrinkles on his frail face are dead giveaways that each time his son seizes, he wishes it were him instead. And yet children 
are so resilient. And I'm living proof that parents are too. As we soak in this strange story of Mark 9, you might remember that just before the boy's father makes his way through the crowd to implore the healer's help, that Jesus, Peter, James, and John are making their way down the mountain after Jesus' transfiguration. As they saunter from the summit, Jesus and His inner circle are met with this painful reality of human suffering and the challenge of a chronic ailment. While crowds run to greet Him, the nine remaining disciples are doing the Lord's work. And I want you to look at it in verse 14. They're doing the Lord's work of arguing. Now, we don't often get to see an angry Jesus, but we do in verse 16. I can almost hear him talking through his clenched teeth. What are you arguing with them about? Well, I'm afraid that there are some well-meaning Christians who have adopted an argumentative side of the immature disciples that stands in stark contrast to the action side of the mature disciples we later read about in the New Testament. I'm afraid that too often, when we are faced with meeting the needs of the diseased, the, desert, the, the deserted, the disowned, and the displaced, we are tempted to, to dissent to action. We would prefer conversation and we prefer theology to theophany. That is, a visible manifestation of God to humankind, or said another way, being the presence of Christ to the world. The more carefully we read this story, it's clear that Jesus and the boy's father have a lot more in common than we first realize. They both believe, and yet they can't believe the disciples. And both of them cry out. Jesus cries out looking for help with healings. How much longer will I put up with you? It's the exasperated cry of a teacher whose students can't quite grasp the concept. Meanwhile, the boy's father cries out looking for help by healing. If you're able to do anything, have compassion on us and help us is the exasperated cry of a father whose child has suffered his whole life. I've learned, though, that the cries of the world and the call of God sound the same. This I'm happy to report, First Cape, that you all know well. So let me echo what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1, chapter 3. We constantly remember your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and the presence of God our Father. As a cooperative Baptist fellowship congregation, 
you all share what the New Testament calls koinonia, the mutual self-giving. Your generosity over the years has joined with other congregations toward cultivating beloved community and bearing witness to Jesus Christ, seeking transformational development around three primary contexts. That is global poverty, global migration, and in service with the global church. Your missional work in and around Cape Girardeau extends into St. Louis with the partnership you share with Sasha and Mira Zivanoff. I learned that Mira and I celebrate a birthday together. It's awesome. And that work goes alongside 25 other countries where our field personnel are actively engaged. When you answer the cries of the world, you, church, are answering the call of God. Your obedience to living out the great commandment with the great commission echoes in eternity. When you invest your time to serve in a food pantry in St. Louis, you are, with your love, showing the world who God is. The boy's father pleads to Jesus for compassionate help. And Jesus replies in verse 23 with what appears to be a two-word Greek rhyming mantra that I want you to write down in your notes. I never thought I would use to the pulpit. Dunanta. Panta Dunanta. I'll spell that for you. P-A-N-T-A. Panta. The second word is Dunanta. D-Y-N-A-N-T-A. Panta, P-A-N-T-A, Dananta, D-Y-N-A-N-T-A. It's a, it's a phrase that means all things are possible. Panta, all things, Dunanta, are possible. And church, you've already preached this sermon this morning. You already preached it. So I'd like to say to the Father who persists in bringing His seizing Son to Jesus, Panta Dananta. To the mother who persists in praying for her child while she's away at university, Panta Dananta. To the widower who persists in honoring a lifetime of love by letting himself slowly and surely fall in love again. Panta, Dananta. To the daughter who persists in treating her post-traumatic stress with weekly therapy and seeking justice for herself following an assault, I say, Panta, Dananta. 
to the refugee who persists in attending ESL classes at night to make this new land a home, Panta, Dananta, to the marginalized one who persists in living his truth even after constant rejection. I say, Panta, Dananta, to the addicted who persists in radical truth by going to anonymous meetings and yet being fully known in those meetings, Panta, Dananta, to the adopted child who persists in reminding herself or himself that they are worthy, they are valuable, and they are loved even when they don't feel like it. Panta, Dananta, all things, church, all things are possible to the ones who believe. It is also to the one who has surgery on Thursday at 8.30. To David and Mary Lyons, I say, Panta, Dananta, in the name of Jesus, all things are possible. I want you to know this church that compassion is the fuel for miracles. Even the simple act of dignified compassion to one neighbor brings the healing process to bear. Mark's community knows this truth. In Mark 6.34, when Jesus sees a large crowd, it says He had compassion on them and He taught them, and He feeds 5,000 people. In Mark 8, 2, Jesus says, I have compassion for these people, and they have already been with Me for three days, and they have yet to eat. And so He feeds another 4,000 people. In total, Mark's community has witnessed the very first fast food chain trademarked by Jesus Himself who served as general manager getting 9,000 filet fish sandwiches to the hungry masses. <laughs> and what made Jesus want to feed those grumbling, growling bellies? I suspect it's the same compassion that prompted Pope Francis to say of prayer, you pray for the hungry, and then you feed them. That's how prayer works. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus' miracles often have the precursor of compassion. Miracles still happen today that are fueled by compassion coupled with the catalyst of prayer courageous prayer, and an unyielding, unwavering action. The Benedictine monks use three words to describe this phenomenon. Ora et labora. Pray and work. Pray and work is precisely what Jesus did after hearing the familiar cry of the boy's father and perhaps the familiar cry of every person everywhere throughout all time emphatically. I believe. Help my unbelief. In verse 24, we learn that the boy's father is from Missouri. 
That show me spirit is hard to miss. In my work with churches and ministers navigating transitions, I've decided that the anxiety of the unknown causes congregations and clergy to ask the same subliminal questions, but especially this one. Can God be trusted? Can God be trusted through this process? And like the boy's father, we know the answer, but the process almost demands that we ask it again and again as though we're reminding ourselves that yes, indeed, God can be trusted with my life. The ritual, the reminder, the remembrance looks a lot like worship. When doubts creep into your minds about healings, maybe when they creep into your minds about transitions or about rites of passage or maybe faith in general, hear me say, do not be dismayed Do not be embarrassed or discouraged about the assurance of your salvation and maybe your lack of faith. Testing of your faith is not the same as flunking your faith. In fact, upon careful examination, you might very well find that the impossible has become your past too often not to trust God with your future. I'm going to say that again. Upon careful examination of your faith, you might very well find that the impossible has been your past way too often that you can trust God with your future. Of course, with doubts in full view, (laughs) the best way to overcome unbelief is with compassion. The surest way to skirt despair is to take What immediate action we can because, as William Barclay writes, to approach anything in the spirit of hopelessness is to make it hopeless. But to approach anything with the spirit of faith is to make it a possibility. Our Christ and communities are crying out for our compassionate responses. Will you listen and open your heart to the stirring of God's Spirit? Will you hear the cries of the widows and the orphans and the immigrants and open your minds to the creative ways that you, young and old and anywhere in between, you can ignite the compassion and prayer into the miraculous mission of God? It is interesting to me what happens after Jesus heals the boy. I believe what Jesus does has implications for what we are called and equipped to do. After Jesus commands that Spirit to come from the boy and to never enter him again, the Spirit cries out and convulses him one more time and then renders the boy as like a corpse. And the onlookers think he's dead. And verse 27 reads this, But Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. 
if you're not careful, you might miss the, the, the lurking miracle that is uplift. When Jesus took the boy's hand and raised him up, he was able to stand. Church, that's uplift. The opposite of unbelief is not belief. The opposite of unbelief is uplift. Uplift is the reenactment of the resurrection. Compassionate prayer and work are formula for lifting our fellow humans so that their lives improve socially, culturally, intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, morally, and most importantly, eternally. There are countless examples of uplift in the life of the church that extend well beyond the walls of the building. I'll say that during Tinsley's hospital visit, the coordinator, Terry Maples, and the associate coordinator, Mark Snipes, of CBF of Virginia, asked what we would like for lunch. And then they asked if there was anything special that they might bring for Tinsley as a treat. You know, in just a few days before, Tinsley had asked if she could have a popsicle. You all, I got 10,000 steps on my Fitbit looking everywhere in that hospital complex and could not find nary a popsicle anywhere. I thought, Terry, you know, you don't have to do anything special. Just, you know, those, that, those cheap frozen popsicles that are, you know, in the little plastic, maybe in the, they're in like a netting. You ever seen those? They're in like a pack of two million. And, you know, I said, nothing fancy, nothing expensive, cheap, 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 cheap. About noontime, Terry and Mark waltz in with some lunch and a red-netted bag of frozen popsicles that became what I like to call the artificially flavored miracle of ice. Tinsley beamed. Daddy, can I have one? Of course. There are no rules in the hospital. You can have whatever you want. As long as you'll do your therapies and let me do wound care. And so she said, okay, everybody has to have one. And when a little girl in a hospital announces that everybody has to have a popsicle, whether you want one or not, you choose your color. I'll take the green one, red, purple, yellow. I mean, it's the whole go. It's the whole go. Everybody's got a popsicle. She goes, Dad, we ought to give Avery one. Now, Avery was the gent beside her in a room. He had had an accident that involved a bus while he was waiting at the bus stop. He had been in the hospital for over three months brutal. You could see the despair in his eyes, but he had taken a liking to Tinsley. He was just one year older, so they became fast friends. So I said, well, Tinsley, we'll be happy to take one to Avery, but let's go. So she gets down and waddles like a penguin. All right, honey, you got to do heel toe. Okay, daddy. Okay. It doesn't hurt. You're good. Avery, would you like a popsicle? Yeah. 
would you like a popsicle? Would you like a popsicle? Would you like... So everybody in the room, get a popsicle. Avery says, I think Muhammad would like a popsicle too. Who's Muhammad? He's in the door beside me on the other side. Well, let's go, Avery. I got the red netted bag freezing my shoulder off, and I walk over. Muhammad, what do you think? You want a popsicle? Now, Muhammad, he's probably in his 40s. He, too, had been severely burned, mostly all the way down here in a house fire. When I say the man was depressed, I hadn't seen a soul that, that beat down in my life. But when you get a popsicle from a couple kids, you can fake it. <laughs> and he faked it. And everybody in his family got one. Well, it became our daily ritual. We were going to deliver popsicles to everybody on the floor, including the nurses. And you can't say no. Daddy's got the scissors. Tinsley's got the popsicles. We're giving them out to everybody. I mean, we've got two million of them. Well, later on, Tinsley gets discharged. I get, a, I get a message on Facebook from Avery's mother. She says, I don't know what your daughter did for my son, but he's come back to life. He's come back to life. We're going to be discharged in a week. You gave us our life back. And I thought, boy, it wasn't me. It was Tinsley. <laughs> and it was, it was Terry and Mark who brought the cheapest popsicles you could buy <laughs> as a good gift. Every good and perfect gift is from the Father above, the Father of light. She said, you ought, to be, you ought to know this too, Muhammad, who never, ever walks. Did you know he never walked? We've never seen him walk until Tinsley and Avery compelled him by their popsicle deliveries. I'm sorry, what? He hadn't, he hadn't walked since we've known him. And a man who was deeply depressed, unmotivated to heal, gets up, puts these, these little tykes in a wagon every day that we were there, and he drags them around the full burn center. And we hand out popsicles in Jesus' name. Tinsley was discharged. She gave, she gave charge over the popsicles to Avery. A week later, Avery's discharged. Avery passes it down to Muhammad. And Muhammad is giving popsicles in the name of Jesus. <laughs> And he was a devout Muslim. I'm sure he still is. But boy, an act of compassion, an act of compassion changed their lives. You know the feeling of disbelief that dwells in the very heart of every person? Even people of faith? It is outdone by uplift. You may believe, but compassionate prayer that works towards uplift is the only help for your unbelief. 
for our unbelief, mine included. Uplift is the only cure, the only help for our unbelief. So what do you think, church? Can I lend you a hand? Thank you for bearing me up when I was at my wit's end. I trust you to do the same from now to eternity. Amen? Amen.